Today, America has experienced one of the greatest tragedies ever witnessed on our soil. These heinous acts of violence are an assault on the security of our nation. They are an assault on the security and the freedom of every American citizen. We will not tolerate such acts. We will expend every effort and devote all the necessary resources to bring the people responsible for these acts, these crimes, to justice. Now is the time for us to come together as a nation to offer our support, our prayers for victims and for their families, for the rescue workers, for law enforcement officials, for every one of us that has been changed forever by this horrible tragedy. The following is a summary of the known facts surrounding today's incidents. American Airlines Flight 11 departed Boston for Los Angeles, hijacked by suspects armed with knives. This plane crashed into the World Trade Center. United Airlines Flight 175 departed Boston for Los Angeles, was hijacked and crashed into the World Trade Center. American Airlines Flight 77 departed Washington Dulles for Los Angeles, was hijacked and crashed into the Pentagon. United Airlines Flight 93 departed Newark for San Francisco, was hijacked and crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Happy Thanksgiving. So, this is going to be a special episode of the Darkened Hour. And I've tried this before, I think about two years ago, where in this episode, I'm going to be free dealing, wheeling and dealing, so to speak, where there's going to be no written questions, no outline, basically just going to give a shoot on the terrorist events of September 11, 2001, in areas relating to it, before and after. I'm going to do my best to cover it all today as much as I can in a way that's very comfortable. And I thought when I did that episode two years ago that it went good. It went all right. I covered a lot of ground. But I'm going to be a little bit more loose in this one. 
wide ranging. But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to lose you, the listener. I'm not going to jump from point to point, go from, say, the 93 bombing to the circumvention of the Geneva Convention. I'm not going to basically jump decades here. But we're going to talk about a lot. A lot of ground, a lot of areas. Areas that you might not have really entertained before. Information that you may not have come across. Or information that you have come across, but it's been a while since you last heard it. And not to basically just bore you. I'm going to construct it in a way where we're going to cover six points regarding 9-11. And, you know, there's a lot of people that don't know what I'm about. What makes me tick with, uh, you know, who I am. And basically, I don't let people really know about my personal life because, for one, I'm not important here. I'm a messenger. And when I first came to study 9-11 back in 2006, 5, 6, I noticed that even back then, there were a lot of so-called self-appointed experts, celebrities, if you will, horrifying a title as that is for a very depressing and expansive subject. And so what I wanted to do was basically collect information, process it through the scientific method, and then come to a conclusion. And that's how investigative reporting and investigative uh, work is conducted to get to the truth. Isn't that what we're all about? I mean, that was the whole genesis of the 9-11 truth movement, right? just like any truth movement, they want to ascertain what? The truth. But as of 2023, and I say this with conviction because I've been around the truth movement for a very long time, online, on the streets, I'm going to come to the conclusion is that they became more enamored with vanity, with believing that there was a conspiracy in their rush to implicate the U.S. government or Israel for the attacks of 9-11 that made them believe in the most fantastical, the most ridiculous theories because it opposed the official narrative. 
whatever that means. Because whenever I ask a tutor about what the official narrative is, I get a very vague response, differing, but usually vague. And the public itself are not very learned about this subject because for one, yes, it is very expensive. And of course, the media certainly sucks in this area because they are basically just reporting on what? The ceremony, the idea that Islamic fundamentalists hate your freedoms. How boring is that? Oh, as if that tells the whole story or even part of it. And so I knew all this going in that I wasn't going to be popular with the masses because I'm not sexy enough. Because I'm not going to dress up 9-11 in a way where it becomes more alluring. I'm more interested in getting to the truth, no matter where it lies, no matter where it goes. And if it doesn't implicate the U.S. government, and if it doesn't implicate Israel, too bad. Are you more interested in the truth, or are you more interested in acquiescing to your biases? You can't have it both ways. I like in the 9-11 truth movement, the fringe part of the 9-11 truth movement, those who entertain ridiculous theories. This is not a general declaration of the movement because there are good people within that movement. And I know some of them personally. But the fringe movement wants 9-11 simple and always implicating a certain country or a certain government. And I look at the 9-11 truth movement as if it's a corrupt police officer. Imagine a homicide detective goes to a murder scene taped off. The crowd surrounding, swelling people. And he enters this scene and the first thing that comes out of his mouth before he even looks or investigates says, well, I know what didn't happen here. You would say, holy shit, how did he come to that conclusion? You would say to yourself, that's one corrupt motherfucker. He can't be taken serious. We got to get this guy off the case. Who knows what evidence he's going to fix, uh, make up? Who knows what evidence he's going to plant? 
Is he going to be honest? What's his agenda? Who's he going to implicate? Maybe there's somebody in mind. Well, that's what the fringe movement of the 9-11 truth movement did. And so this motivated me to basically investigate 9-11 like an honest investigator. I wanted to be honest. I wanted to be straightforward, boring, because I wanted the information, the evidence to speak for itself. And what I didn't want was to basically anybody remember me ahead of the evidence. Because if that's the case, then I did it wrong. Because I made it about me and not about the information. And when you look at certain people within the fringe aspects of the truth movement, you remember names. You don't remember information. Christopher Bolin, for example. What do you remember about him? What information do you remember specifically? Well, you only know him because he blames Israel for 9-11 and for everything else. including Israel being behind the error of Bill Buckner in the 1986 World Series, Game 6. Shamelessly embarrassing. Rebecca Roth, what do we remember about her besides a silly wig and numerous names? Judy Wood, what do we really remember about her besides wearing a lab coat? and claiming that directed energy weapons melted to towers. And I can name dozens more. But you remember those names. But you don't remember specifics or information that they imparted because the information that they imparted is basically inaccurate, or it's outright lies. No different than what you're getting out of CNN or Fox or Newsmax or MSNBC. They're just a little bit more subdued in their reporting. And so that's what I'm about. I'm nobody special. I'm an ex-college basketball player, ex-drug addict. I don't want people to see me as some sort of Superman, somebody who is bigger and larger than life, even though I'm six foot ten. Yes, I am tall. But I'm just like you. I'm a common man who has grown to basically new heights, new future, to better myself, 
which is a work in progress, are we all? Whose interest in this subject of 9-11 grew fanatically. Now, I must admit, you know, I'm single and um, maybe not anymore, but um, but I had a lot of time on my hands to read, to digest documents and files over the years, read books. Uh, and I did this for 16 years now. I'm not smarter than anybody. I'm not more enlightened. I just have more time. And what I want to do is basically create viral media to share this information with the public because they weren't getting it from anywhere else. I mean, there were really awesome skeptics like Paul Thompson, who I consider the best 9-11 researcher on planet Earth and the founder of HistoryComs.org, which is now defunct, unfortunately. Kevin Fenton, who wrote Disconnecting the Dots. Ray Nolowasilski and John Duffy, The Watchdogs Didn't Bark. Kyle Hentz, 9-11 Citizens. John Judge, the late John Judge. Robbie and Abby Martin. And as of late, people I came across, like DJ Thermal Detonator. Ryan Dawson. And guys who came a little bit later than that, who are the future. Sean Russell and Darren Harvey from their podcast, Beyond Ground Zero. Ben and Eric over at Podcasts for New American Century. And now Jonathan Bellatone. They're coming out. Because we're the only ones left standing. And the fringe conspiracy movement is dying off. Why? Because they can only repeat themselves so many times before it becomes boring, even to their own audience. How many times can you hear Christopher Bowling say, Israel is responsible for 9-11, that the planes themselves were directly controlled by Dov Zakheim with a controller in the basement of the Pentagon, <laughs> like some Atari joystick. And that the phone calls are fake, that a missile hit World Trade Center 6. Yes, Christopher Boland said this. That they shot a missile into World Trade Center 6. And that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in Guantanamo Bay is a fake. Which means that his lawyer and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's cousin, Omar al-Baluchi, don't realize they're talking to a fake. You see how quick it is to, to dis dismiss these theories? It doesn't take long to debunk these people. But it's sexy. It's nice. It's entertaining. Wow, the government could do that? Holy shit. You know, they can make up names. They could just have planes empty of people. And they could just swap planes without 
radar satellite showing. They could just facilitate the radar. They could get everybody in the FAA basically involved with this. The people that saw the hijackers, well, they could be threatened and coerced by agents. And they did, they had to monitor them for 21 years to make sure they go along with the story that the uh, phone calls are manipulated or they're not real, that they're fake, that the hijacked planes went into a, a plane hangar and that everybody was forced to make a phone call and they were shot and the planes were dumped in the ocean, that space beams from outer space melted the World Trade Center but didn't melt the people hanging out the windows, that the World Trade Center was blown up by nuclear devices which caused the towers to collapse and poison the entire area except for the people that were living there for years and they're still living there. Um, on and on and on. And what this did was, was cover, blanket, if you will, the actual conspiracies that show an even bigger conspiracy than these people even realized. So the 9-11 truth movement didn't become a movement of truth. They became a movement of conspiracy and prejudice. Because the Arabs are patsies, the Jews are to blame, and the U.S. government is automatically guilty before they even investigated the crime. Because Alex Jones and Jim Fetzer and Thierry Mason and... Cal to Jason Burmes and Loose Change, Davon Kleist, Christopher Bolin, and Rebecca Roth, and Judy Wood, and Oli Damgard. They all told you the government's guilty. The official narrative is false. Don't read the 9-11 Commission Report. Don't read the Joint House Inquiry. Don't read anything from the government. It's all fake. It's all manipulated. They created everything. It's it. So what they did was, basically, they made the government so omniscient, so omnipotent, like a god, if you will. And what they did was, was basically created in a way so that Anything that comes out in the future, including documentary evidence that shows a conspiracy, if you read the information, well, guess what? I came for the government. You can't believe it. Don't bother looking for errors in the Nyland Commission report. Just say the whole book is false. A defense mechanism. What they did was was basically create a scapegoat for those in the CIA, the NSA, Israeli Mossad, the Saudi General Intelligence Directorate, God knows who's else. And they were shielded from prosecution, from public knowledge, because The 9-11 fringe movement couldn't be taken serious. And if you have a question the government and you were a serious researcher, you're lumped in with the nut jobs. And so I began my YouTube channel, my WordPress, I wrote articles, and I have thousands of videos on YouTube. Because what I want is an educated public.
because that's how we'll make change. And even if we don't make change, we can actually say to our children or to our loved ones and friends that at least we tried. And what I wanted to talk about today are six points. Six points that show a, a, a morphing of the 9-11 attacks, what led to it, what came after it, what happened during it. And those six points are genesis, motives, attacks, investigation, aftermath, and justice. And I'm going to break it down to the best of my ability. Genesis. The genesis of the 9-11 attacks can go as far back as the invention of Wahhabism. or the invention of the Zionist state of Israel, or the end of the Six-Day War, which was the end of Arab nationalism, or the rise of Wahhabism, Islamic fundamentalism. I usually like to start with the 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, because one, I cannot, I don't have to lose the reader or the viewer because it's relevant history. The more further back I go, the more ground I could cover and explain in full. But also it's a lot more work. And all of a sudden, that person you're trying to get to basically involved in this investigation is suddenly going to become a little bit more overwhelmed the further back you go. But everything has a starting point. And it's really something else when you think about how Islamic fundamentalism began because it began almost internationally in the year 1979. Because what, what happened in 1979? Well, you had the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. You had the, the, the revolution in Iran and the forced deposition of the Shah of Iran, Reza Pahlavi, and an ignored bit of history that played a very big role, which was the Grand Mosque seizure in Saudi Arabia. All this happened within a short window of 12 to 14 months. And when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, 
it basically gave momentum to a number of clerics and imams all over the Arabian Peninsula and in Europe and in Southeast Asia to come together to unify their ideological differences to engage the secular kafir army of the Soviet Union. Kafir meaning disbeliever. And of course, because it's the Soviet Union, the United States, of course, becomes immediately interested. What can we do to support the Afghan armies called the Mujahideen to destroy the one competitor in the world that can basically threaten our world domination. And so the United States, through the Central Intelligence Agency, began a program called Operation Cyclone, in which the CIA, in coordination with the Pakistan Inter-Service Intelligence Agency, also known as the ISI, began spending millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons aid and military training by the ISI under the direct full involvement of the CIA to Afghan warlords and their Mujahideen armies. Groups like the Hizb-e-Islami, headed under Gulbuddin Hekmatar, or the Haqqani Network, headed under Jalaluddin Haqqani, and other warlords like Abdul Rasul Sayyaf. In which most of the money and training went to these warlords and their groups. Now, the war was primarily fought with Afghans. The Arabs came a little bit later. And the United States, under the Carter administration, began using their covert operation, Operation Cyclone, to deliver weapons and military training to the Afghan Mujahideen. in which National Security Advisor Zygmunt Brzezinski would become at the forefront of the Mujahideen in Pakistan. U.S. National Security Advisor Brzezinski flew to Pakistan to set about rallying resistance. He wanted to arm the Mujahideen without revealing America's role. On the Afghan border near the Khyber Pass, he urged the soldiers of God to redouble their efforts. We know of their deep belief in God, and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. 
you'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. The purpose of coordinating with the Pakistanis would be to make the Soviets bleed for as much and as long. And that's what it was about. Did you, I mean, really, do you really think the United States cares about the Islamic religion and the preservation of it? Most of the governments of this world always put religion as a forefront. We're fighting because the cause is right. We're fighting because God is on our side. And imagine the barbarity and the tragedy that follows with it when you believe that God is on your side. And thus began a 10-year war in which we saw the collapse of the Soviet Empire, which was written in a book by Brzezinski called The Grand Chessboard, in which he said, in short, that the United States had to become the sole superpower in Eurasia and that the Soviet Union had to be defeated. And in order to pres preserve this power in Southeast Asia and the Middle East and Europe was to ensure that there would be no competing country or government that could threaten U.S. hegemony in those regions in which those governments would be Western influenced. Towards the end of the war, we saw a number of individuals that were prominent during the war. People like Abdullah Yusuf Azam, a Palestinian cleric who basically was known for being the godfather of modern-day jihad, in which he saw not a spiritual battle only, but also a physical one, in which the Islamic religion was under threat by a disbelieving entity in the Soviet Union, and that religion and war had to be at the forefront. Another individual was Osama bin Laden, the 54th son of Mohammed bin Laden, who is the founder of the construction company, the Saudi bin Laden Group, which basically saw the company grow in the last 60 years in which the Saudi royal family used only this company to basically reform Mecca and Medina, the holiest sites of Islam. And so the portrayal that bin Laden began 
to show to the world this portrayal of a freedom fighter. That he wanted to be useful. He wanted to use his influence in the company to help the Mujahideen. And so he met with Abdullah Yusuf Azam. And they began to create an organizational office that would cater to Arabs that were now entering the war in the middle part and the final stages of the conflict. And this office would be called the Maktab al-Kidamat, translated from the Arabic, the Afghan Services Bureau, founded by three people, an Algerian uh, Algerian freedom fighter named Abdullah Anas, Abdullah Yusuf Azam, and Osama bin Laden, who funded the company and bought the houses and the buildings the training centers Azam was its emir bin laden was its financier and anas was the recruiter over time the offices began to grow in pakistan enough where a trickle down effect from operation cyclone began there was another office built in the United States, a physical office that was found in Brooklyn, New York, called the al Farouk Mosque. Upstairs was a refugee center called Al-Kifa, founded by Fawaz Dharma, who is a direct connection between New York and Pakistan and the members of the Maktab al-Kidamat all under the authority of Osama bin Laden. Arabs from all over the world began to descend into Pakistan through the Maktab al-Kidamat, countries like the Philippines, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, even Great Britain, France, Germany, the United States. Millions of dollars came through the Islamic charities. And which saw a number of militants go through this program and get direct training and military aid from the Pakistan ISI through the authority of the Central Intelligence Agency. Another individual which would have a profound effect was Dr. Ayman al-Zuhari, who is the leader, a co-emir of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, based in Egypt. Dr. Ayman al-Zuhari was released from the Torah jail in Egypt for his role in the assassination of Anwar Sadat, the president in 1980, in which he played very little role. And Zohari relocated to Pakistan. 
and the jails in Egypt and Jordan and Syria, in which Islamists were being depressed by socialist dictators, in the hopes that these people would end up dying in the battlefield. What they didn't rely on was that the very few that did live were now more battle-hardened because of the program afforded to them. Thank you, CIA. Thank you, ISI. Thank you, General Intelligence Directorate of Saudi Arabia. This is the Frankenstein monster you helped create. Now, what I'm sharing with you is not speculation. And what I, if I am going to speculate, I'm going to be careful to tell you that I'm going to speculate. Because I don't want you to look on the internet for information that isn't there. I want you to come away with information and that in the hopes that you will one day open your own channels or you'll impart this information, knowledge, to others. And that's how we'll build a movement to make that change, to force a new investigation. When the war ended, Bin Laden took over the Maktab al-Kidamat from Abdullah Yusuf Azam because Dr. Ayman al-Zahiri thought that Abdullah Yusuf Azam was an agent of the West and began spreading rumors. At the same time, there was another Egyptian militant in New York, also known as the Blind Sheikh, Omar Abdul Rahman who is a leader of the Gamma Islamiyya, a co-emir, with a large following in New York, in Egypt, that made him very dangerous. He, too, was beginning to take over the mosques in Brooklyn, New York, and Jersey City, mosques like Masjid al-Islam and the Al-Farouk. And imams like Mustafa al-Shalabi, Mustafa Shalabi, were beginning to become threatened. As you'll see, a direct connection between Egypt fundamentalism and moderate Islamic clerics that wanted to engage the enemy elsewhere. For Abdullah Yusuf Azam, the fear was, was that the Mujahideen would fight against the Israelis who were deposing the Palestinians. Mustafa Shalabi saw that the funding from the Maktab al-Kidmat should be directed toward reconstructing the country of Afghanistan as well as supporting the Palestinians in Gaza and West Bank. It just so happens that Abdullah Yusuf Azam was murdered, and so was Mustafa Shalabi. Makes you wonder. Now, we don't know who killed Azam, 
and we don't know who killed Shalabi. But it just so happens there were there were two Egyptian radical clerics that were too close for comfort when it came to the assassination or the murders of these two people, Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri and Omar Abdel-Rahman. And so the legend of bin Laden grew. His group, called Al-Qaeda, began as a guerrilla fighting unit from a camp in the Paktia province of Afghanistan, and the name of the camp was Al-Masada, which translates to the lion's den. A number of the people of this group, like Abu Ubaidah al-Benshiri and Abu Hafs al-Masri, who were former Egyptian military officials and police officers. How ironic. Boy, Egypt is right there. Always intertwined. And other people like Abu Ayyub al-Iraqi and Mamdu Mahmoud Salim, Abu Musab al-Saudi and Saeed Imam al-Sharif, also known as Dr. Fadl, who would basically become a leading and influential radical fundamentalist in which he wrote a paper on how to use the term jihad in a martyrdom tone. And these group of Egyptians would also have a, have a name called takfiri. Takfiri basically means a Muslim who condemns another Muslim as being fake, munafiq, or un-Islamic, because they don't adhere to Wahhabi principles or Salafi ideology. The leading members of this camp would relocate with bin Laden to the Sudan. And the members of the al-Masada were now known as the base of operations, otherwise known as al-Qaeda. Translated from the English meaning the base, the base, meaning al-Masada base. In the 9-11 truth movement, some of the self-proclaimed experts will have you think that al-Qaeda doesn't exist, that it's a, basically a database of names, that bin Laden had like 10 people. No, they didn't. They were a big organization while they grew into Sudan. How do we know that? Because we have documents called the Harmony documents. The Tariq Osama, for example. It's written in Arabic, but it's translated. Read the Abbottabad Papers. Fantastic book. Which basically shows that through the documents, shows that there was a coordinated effort in having al-Qaeda led by a number of committees, 
like a Shura committee, a military committee, a widow's committee, a media committee. They were organized. They were a real organization. There were real fundamentalists in this organization who got training and military aid and financing indirectly, of course, from Operation Cyclone. A lot of these people got indirect help from the United States government and foreign intelligence. It's not like the CIA or Israel or Great Britain basically said, we're going to create a group and we're just going to put a bunch of names and we're just going to have them become the fall guy for every terrorist incident in the 1990s. That's just simple thinking. That's, first of all, it's ridiculous because anybody could just take a look and investigate each terrorist incident and know certain names that were attributed to this incident, look at their backgrounds and see, oh yeah, they were involved with Al-Qaeda and that this person actually existed. Infantile thinking. So bin Laden, under the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, created Al-Qaeda, and they suddenly became the new enemy that replaced the Soviet Union. Maybe that's the reason why. And I'm speculating here that foreign governments and the United States helped to facilitate the rise of these groups because they needed to replace an enemy that's defeated, which was the Soviet Union. And what better enemy than Islamic fundamentalism, which basically can get you anywhere around the world, that they can infiltrate anywhere around the world. And not this giant monolithic entity like the Soviet Union, which basically had nuclear weapons. They could really end the world. Islamic fundamentalists could be anywhere. We can engage any country that facilitates or gives logistical or financial aid to these groups. There's a lot of prospects here. And even though we'll help facilitate its rise, they'll defeat an enemy. And that's exactly what happened. But I'm not going to go out and be irresponsible and say, well, that's exactly why groups like Al-Qaeda exist, because the United States helped to create them. No. The responsible view is that we indirectly, when, when I say we, we're not talking about the American people, talk about the United States government, that they help to facilitate its rise indirectly. Because it's irresponsible to basically say, well, I know they did it, because that means you have information which would be classified, actually, and you don't possess that information. So be careful 
about using speculation. You have irrational speculation and reasonable speculation, but don't use it too much as a form of evidence. It's good to fill in the blanks at times. And so bin Laden began to grow his army in the Sudan. And over time, the CIA began tracking him in the Sudan. They put enough pressure on the Sudanese government under Omar al-Bashir and its emir of the National Islamic Front, Hassan al-Tarabi, who invited bin Laden, in which bin Laden spent tens of millions of dollars on the infrastructure. And after being forcibly expelled from the country by U.S. pressure, which helped enrage bin Laden, he went back to the country that he once helped to liberate, Afghanistan. Now the Taliban gave him pomp and circumstance, very unlike Sudan, which gave him the whole pomp and circumstance. The Taliban greeted him warmly at the at the international airport in Pakistan, but whisked him away silently into a safe house. It's what bin Laden wanted. And now the Taliban had a problem. What to do with a guest? The Taliban go by Hanafi tradition. Pashtun Wali law tradition, which predates even Islam. That if an Islamic guest comes to your house, you are to never reject them and always receive them. Become a gracious host. And that's what the Taliban did. Now the Taliban which grew out of the madrasas in Jalalabad and Islamabad, were fighting against the communists in Afghanistan for control of the country. But there's a problem. Two Afghan warlords were at odds with each other. Gulbuddin Hekmatar of the Hizabi Islami and Ahmed Shah Massoud of the Northern Alliance who saw Gulbuddin Hekmatar as being too militant, in which Shah Musud, who himself wasn't as clean, but was far more um, likable than the ghoul of Hekmatar. Masood did not want to depose women, whereas the Taliban and Gulbuddin Hekmatar wanted to basically outlaw music, outlaw women going to university, and have the country governed under the Sharia. So there was a civil war, and the Taliban sided with Gulbuddin Hekmatar. And bin Laden resided in the country and basically under the influence of Dr. Ayman al-Zahiri and Dr. Saeed Imam al-Sharif, Dr. Fadl, 
and with the growing rise of Wahhabism within Al-Qaeda, began its war with the West. There were two declarations of war. 1996, in which bin Laden's first fatwa went to war with the United States military in Mecca and Medina. The second fatwa was in 1998, in which bin Laden now directed his vitriol not to just the military, but also to civilians anywhere in the world. John Miller from ABC News was one of the very first journalists to interview bin Laden. And find out just exactly why bin Laden wanted to go to war with the United States. One of the byproducts of, of the post 9-11 world. John Miller is the NYPD's Deputy Commissioner for Intelligence and Counterterrorism now, but in 1998, he was a reporter for ABC News, and he did an interview that would presage a generation of terror. Bin Laden comes across the field, and we step like three steps down into this hut that's kind of dug into the ground. Um, inside, it looks like a cave because the the walls are un uneven. Miller interviewed al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden in Pakistan three years before the World Trade Center bombings. Not many outside the counterterrorism world even knew who bin Laden was back then, but he was suspected in the U.S. embassy attacks in Tanzania and soon the attacks on the USS Cole in Yemen. Miller spent 10 days traveling with al-Qaeda operatives in Pakistan and Afghanistan before one night... Bin Laden finally showed up. He sat down um, on this kind of bench covered in red fabric and put a blanket kind of over his knee. It was like sitting at story time with an old uncle. But there was a problem, a big problem. Bin Laden's handlers wouldn't allow anyone to translate the sheikh's answers. Miller didn't know what Bin Laden was saying. And the al-Qaeda leader's monotonal, measured delivery was deceivingly calm. Miller had no way of knowing just how fiery it was. And at the end, I went back to the Arabic-speaking Iraqi fixer who had come with us on the trip. And I said, did he answer any of the questions? And he said, we need to get the tapes and we need to get out. He declared war on America. And he vowed three years before 9-11 that he would kill American civilians. We do not differentiate between those dressed in military uniforms and civilians. They are all targets. We predict a black day for America and the end of the United States. They will retreat from our land and collect the bodies of their sons back to America, if Allah wills. He said things that were a preview to history that had not yet occurred. And he said all these things with some confidence. An early version of the 9-11 plot was already in the planning stages when Miller interviewed bin Laden. He didn't tell Miller about that. 
but he did promise attacks against America. On May 28, 1998, that sounded like a lot of tall talk from a guy in a cave with a couple thousand. Now, mind you, Bin Laden is not the only terrorist sympathizer, leader, that was at odds with the United States. Let's revert back to a couple of Baluchi boys that began its attack on the United States that predate even Bin Laden that also have a connection to foreign intelligence. Abdul Basit Karim, also known as Ramzi Youssef, who also has 25 other aliases, was a university student at Wanasee College that went to Afghanistan during the height of the war and trained in camps that would later be linked to Al-Qaeda later. Yusuf was not Al-Qaeda. He never swore loyalty, bayat, to bin Laden. He never met bin Laden. Basically, learned how to build bombs and saw that his talents could be used in a more greater cause, a cause that involved jihad in an offensive manner that would basically be opposing or in opposition to the jihad practiced by Abdullah Yusuf Azam. Ramzi Yusuf was a very educated man, also very good-looking, tall, tan, had a propensity for being a womanizer. And also being very persuasive. A very interesting figure. His uncle was somebody that is now world renowned, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is alleged to be the 9-11 mastermind. But in 1989, Yusuf actually went to Peshawar and began training at a camp called Sada Training Camp. And it was basically for Afghan Mujahideen fighters where they would learn to like 
manufacture explosive devices, build bombs, how to use electrical devices connected to bombs, how to properly construct connectors to bombs. And an explosive expert from another camp called Jihad Wal helped train Yusuf. And his name was Abu Jafar al Kandari. It was at this camp that Ramzi Yusuf met another individual who also graduated from Swansea College, just like him, Ahmed Ajaj, who has a very interesting background. And let me entice you a little bit here. Ahmed Ajaj was a counterfeiter, somebody who made fraudulent currency. And there's a story by Thomas Friedman of the New York Times and the Village Voice that investigated and wrote about a profile report on Ahmed Ajaj. And what he found out was that Ajaj was arrested by the Israeli police in a makeshift counterfeiting office in a graveyard away from the houses of and being raided by Israeli police. Because who would think that they would be making counterfeit dollars in a graveyard? Anyway, Jad was visited by two members of the Israeli Mossad, in which they offered him a deal. You can escape your four-year charge and sentence if you work with us and infiltrate Hamas, which is a paramilitary group based in Gaza. A judge agreed. And from there, a judge basically became a spy for Israel, reporting back to his handlers. Now, it's not known whether a judge ended this program with the Israelis. Friedman doesn't know either. But keep that in mind. So a judge and Ramzi Yusuf went to the United States together, in which Yusuf applied for asylum using a fake passport. A judge, by the way, the bumbling fool, or playing a part, went before customs with a really bad makeshift passport in which he stole Well, he received his passport at the training camp that glued his picture to the face of the actual person who owned the passport in which the picture fell off. <laughs> Imagine seeing that. But what that's not the most interesting part. The most illuminating part is that a judge had some luggage. And when they opened up the luggage, they found a bunch of really incriminating items. Hey, look at me. I'm a fucking terrorist. What'd they find? 
documents on how to build bombs, a document which had the word Al-Qaeda on it. And this is 1989, folks. Al-Qaeda began in 1987. And other incriminating items that were from Afghanistan. Red flags went up. Who the fuck is this guy? All right, let's put him in detention. He's locked up. Yusuf. Boy, if he is an Irish, I don't know how much luck this guy has. He's going through customs. He's applying for asylum using an Iraqi passport. And because the holding cells were overflowed, he was released on his own recognizance, in which came at the protest of the customs agent that basically said this guy is pretty much dangerous. He's really suspicious. He walks out at JFK airport, gets into a cab and doesn't have to pay for it because he tells the guy he doesn't have any money and it just so happens that the guy driving the cab is a Pakistani. Great luck. <laughs> you know, when I lived in Vegas, I didn't have nowhere near as much luck as Ramsey Yusuf did. And why is Ramsey Yusuf in the United States anyway? Well, it just so happens that he's replacing an individual under the cell of Omar Abdel Rahman. Now, this isn't a story, but once I talk to you about it, it goes like this. And you'll see a connection. And a nefarious one at that. The FBI employed the services of a security guard who is also Egyptian, they're all over the fucking place, named Imad Salem. And they said, could you basically infiltrate this group since you know about Omar Abdel Rahman, in which we didn't know about it. His handler, Nancy Floyd, basically gave authorization from her superior named Carlos Dunbar and began an informant CD1 unit operation Confidential informant CI Imad Salem. He would go to Masjid Al Salam in Jersey City. He would go to Al Farouk in Brooklyn, New York on Atlantic Avenue and play the bodyguard of Omar Abdel Rahman, rising in the ranks real quick because he was Egyptian, just like Rahman. They asked Imad Salem to come to Attica State Prison because somebody wants to talk to you. Who wants to talk to me? They go and visit an individual who's an Egyptian. Duh. <laughs> Everybody's Egyptian. huh? Walk like an Egyptian. El Said Nasser. El Said Nasser was the person who assassinated Rabbi Marikahana at a hotel in Manhattan. El Said Nasser asks Imad Salem 
you were in the military, in which Imad Salim was not. Imad Salim said, yes. Do you know how to build bombs? Imad Salim says, yes, I do. And thus began El Sayyid Nasser and Omar Abdel Rahman's operation, which was to bomb New York City landmarks, Golden, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge, Jewish neighborhoods in Borough Park, the George Washington Bridge, to build small bombs. Emad Salem reported back to his handler, Nancy Floyd, said they want me to build bombs. And so began Emad Salem building bombs. The FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York basically said, well, look, we're going to replace the blasting caps. We're going to replace the powder with fake powder. And they did so, even without Salem knowing about it. And when Salem knew about it, he went back and complained and said, hey, put back the real powder, put back the real blasting caps. If they find out it's fake, I'm dead. They'll kill my family in Egypt. Rahman is dangerous like that. And so they did. But Carlos Dunbar, the real prick that he was, put enough pressure on Nancy Floyd to basically have Emad Salem wear a wire, in which he admittedly previously told Nancy Floyd that he would not. And one of the reasons why he became a consular informant was that he didn't have to testify. And now Carlos Dunbar is changing the rules. No, fuck that. We want this guy to testify against Rahman in the cell that are going to bomb these areas. Imad Salem said no. Carl Stonebar said, well, fuck you. Get out of my office. And thus ended Imad Salem as a confidential informant, which was totally stupid on Dunbar's part. Here you have an informant who is the direct ear and eyes, literally, of a dangerous terrorist, Omar Abdel Rahman. How do you fuck this up? Next, Carlos Dunbar that. Nevertheless, that didn't stop Rahman, and it didn't stop El Sayyid Nasser either. A call was made to Pakistan. In came Ramzi Youssef. In came Ahmed Ajaj. Now, think about Ahmed Ajaj, too. He had an apartment in Houston, Texas. He was also a pizza delivery driver. But he's currently in a holding cell in New York. Now, Yousef arrives in New York, and what does he do? The first thing this guy does is call Ahmed a judge. What for? Because a judge was more adept at building bombs than Yousef was. Now, Yousef was a good bomb maker, but a judge had to have been a little bit better because Yousef is asking him on helping to build a urea nitrate bomb. Far different than what Imad Salem. Now, the 9-11 truth movement always fucks this story up, saying that, oh, it was the FBI that built the bomb, that destroyed, that tried to knock down the North Tower. No. 
That's not true. Imad Salem is no longer a confidential informant in 1992, 93. Yusuf replaced him. The bomb is built. It explodes in the North Tower. But it doesn't collapse the tower. The idea was to have the tower collapse into the South Tower and both towers collapse into Lower Madden, killing 55,000 people approximately. That's what they wanted. Yusuf escapes. Thus began the manhunt for Yusuf. He's later captured anyway and given a 240-year sentence in which he told for the judge he was allowed to read his declaration in which he said that the reason why I am a terrorist is not because of religion, but it's because of your disastrous and murderous foreign policy toward Muslims. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, his uncle, is traveling all over the United States. Then he leaves because the FBI is interested. Who is this guy? But then they lose interest. They find out he's nobody. Not according to one FBI agent named Frank Pellegrino, who says, well, he gave $5,000 to one of the bombers, Mohammed Salameh, through Western Union. This guy's got to be something. And the FBI said, forget about him. He's nobody. College Sheikh Mohammed travels around Southeast Asia, meets with Yusuf in the Philippines, and they devise a plan, along with another associate named Abdul Hakim Murad. Big deal. Really big deal. Abdullah Kimarad was a licensed pilot. He trained inside the United States. He trained at flight schools in New Jersey, North Carolina. And he told Abdullah Kimarad and Ramzi Youssef, well, since they're going to be looking for bombs, why don't we basically hijack a plane and intentionally crash it into CIA Langley headquarters. Yusuf liked the idea, not as much as Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and so he put it in the back of his mind. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed didn't forget about that. And later on, we're going to talk about exactly how this came back to haunt the United States. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, along with Abdul Hakim Murad and Ramzi Youssef, began to construct an international plot called Bajinka. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is huge because this is where the idea for 9-11 came from.
The plan was to basically have Yusuf build 12 Timex watches fitted with nitroglycerin and to be placed above the fuel tanks underneath the seat of a plane in which it would explode in midair. He was to build 12 of these in which planes from the United States and Southeast Asia and have them all explode over the Pacific at one minute intervals. The second part of this, the second part of this phase of this operation was to assassinate Bill Clinton, the president of the United States. However, his security detail was too strong. He was replaced with Pope John Paul II because he was to visit the Philippines. But there was a third hidden phase. And this was only known through the interrogation of Abdul Hakim Murad by Philippines lead investigator Rodolfo Mendoza. The Jinka plot didn't happen because while they were making bombs in this hotel, the Josefa Hotel, in which Ramzi Youssef and Abdul Hakim Murad rented, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed rented from another hotel down the block. And one of the mixtures of this chemical produced thick, acrid smoke that escaped through the doors and windows, which looked like the apartment was burning. Abdullah Kimarad and Ramzi Yusuf fled like Keystone cops. And now the fire department's coming, the police are coming. And when they enter the apartment, fuck me. Do they find everything? Bomb-making material, nitroglycerin, Timex watches, fuses, chemicals, left and right. Motherfucker was building the whole gamut. What the hell do we step into here? Ramzi Youssef says, while he's with the crowd and they're all watching, he tells, uh, he tells Abdul Hakim Rod, Dude, can you go back up there and get my laptop? I left it up there. It has the outline for the plans and everything. All the names, everybody involved. And just like a fucking idiot, thank goodness he did, he went upstairs. And as he's going upstairs to the to the hotel room, everybody stops dead in their tracks and they look at Abdullah Kimran. Who the fuck is this guy? He sees them, he runs for the hills, trips over a tree, He's arrested. They beat the shit out of this guy. He's not saying nothing. Rodolfo Mendoza comes into the room with McDonald's. Hakeem Rod is starving at this point. He grabs a hamburger and Rodolfo says, Ah, I'll give you this hamburger or I could give you over to the Israelis. Hakeem Rod says, Hell no. What do you want to know? Tell me about this Bajinka. And he tells him. And after a couple of days later, Hakim Rod tells him there was a third hidden phase to the plot. And the third hidden phase to the plot was that they were going to hijack 10 planes and have them crash into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, the Empire State Building, the Sears Tower, 
the Golden Gate Bridge, the U.S. Capitol, and a nuclear facility. Everybody involved with this operation were already inside the United States training at flight schools. Mind you, this is 1995, six years prior to 9-11. Rodolfo Mendoza is fucking floored. He writes a report. By the way, the report is public. Go to my WordPress. The interrogation of Abdul Hakim Murad is right there. In the WordPress, just type in Abdul Hakim Murad or Bajinka. Comes up. Free of charge. He writes the report, hands it to the FBI. You guys need better security at international airports in the United States. You also need to notify international airports around the world that, hey, there's terrorists that want to use planes and crash them into high-valued targets. The FAA says this is only pertaining to airports outside of the United States. We don't need to spend money for extra security. Do the FBI act on it? No. Do the FAA act on it? No. Does immigration naturalization have stricter security measures? No. Is that why 9-11 happened? Well, don't take it from me. Take it from Rodolfo Mendoza, who was interviewed by the Associated Press about the direct connection between Bajinka and the 9-11 plot. Seeing uh, an airplane being uh, crashed into the World Trade uh, Center immediately caused a flashback to information I obtained in 1995. And I, and I told that they have done it. So I was really teary-eyed, to be honest, and uh, I don't know what to say. And I, I uh, woke up my wife and told him that, see, I know that uh, they will be doing the, this, but I don't know when. The Philippine government during that time allowed the full corporations with the United States in so far as international cooperation against terrorism. And uh, I know that we have passed that information to our uh, American counterpart. Important uh, lessons um, I think we have derived from. It could have possibly delayed it more because uh, you cannot stop uh, a fanatical group Maybe you can delay their actions. Maybe before doing uh, their actions, they have to be neutralized. What I mean is uh, if uh, there is really a serious uh, initiative to investigate this information, what causes uh, afterwards is possibly a delay or possibly neutralizing the people who are supposed to implement the plan. Now, Abdul Hakim Murad's arrested. Shortly thereafter, Ramzi Yusuf's arrested. 
brought back to the United States, given a 240-year sentence for his role in Pachinka and the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. That leaves Khalid Sheikh Mohammed left. What does Khalid Sheikh Mohammed do? Well, he just travels around the world, like Qatar, where they house him. Meanwhile, the CIA and the FBI find out. Now they have this man surrounded. The Qatari Minister of Health, who's friends with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, tells him about the raid. He escapes. Just so happens there's a missed chance for a contract killer. Oh, it doesn't end there with this fucking guy. Just like Yusuf, he's a player, womanizer, loves to drink. Haram, haram, haram. This guy ain't Muslim. You know, you know, he he may play the part, but he's not a pious Muslim. He's a Wahhabi, a hypocrite. Just like all Islamic terrorists are. They're not pious Muslims. Although the Christian evangelicals would like you to believe they are because they're ignorant as well. Nevertheless, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, what does he do? Well, according to the New York Times, he travels to Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Israel. Wow. Why would this guy go to Israel? <laughs> Don't know how long he was there. Don't know um, what it was for. We got to leave it at that. Meanwhile, bin Laden and his growing army of Al-Qaeda under the leadership, military leadership of people that were involved with Egyptian military, Egyptian intelligence that received military training through the Pakistan ISI CIA are now training other people at these Arab training camps and other Afghan training camps not affiliated with Al-Qaeda. The Taliban are really at odds. They're like, you know, we got to we gotta put a leash on this guy. And according to the book Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan by Ann Stevenson, who I consider the lead, one of the leading experts on Al-Qaeda in the world, and a book I highly recommend, and according to another book by Mustafa Hamid, who knew bin Laden, from Afghanistan, who wrote, who wrote a book called Arabs in Afghanistan, Arabs at War, in which they said that the Taliban held a meeting about maybe handing over bin Laden to the Saudis. But what they feared was that the Saudis would hand over bin Laden to Israel and the United States, and then the entire Islamic world would basically consider the Taliban Munafik, fake Muslim. And they wouldn't support the Taliban in their fight for the control of the country of Afghanistan. So they were stuck with bin Laden. Fuck. Damn it. We're stuck with this fucker. Remember, Bala Omar doesn't speak like that. <laughs> right? Meanwhile, bin Laden is working behind the scenes. 
connecting plans, like the 1998 East Africa bombings, in which outlines for the embassy were coming from another freaking Egyptian. God, they're everywhere in this story, right? You ever think about that? The Egyptians are everywhere because they're the most radical with connections to the Muslim Brotherhood, which, by the way, is a dubious organization. Look into the history of Great Britain with them. Nevertheless, Ali Mohammed is also an informant for the CIA and the FBI. It just so happens he's a triple agent. As if this story couldn't get any fucking spicier. But he's also loyal to bin Laden and Omar Abdel Rahman. So he takes pictures of the embassies in Tanzania and Kenya. Tells him this is the security lapses and shows him. Bin Laden agrees, says we could drive a truck right up to the gates and blow up the embassies in their fight against the West. Why is bin Laden doing this? Is he doing it because the United States are full of apostates? Maybe they're full of Shia. No, it's because throughout the 1990s, bin Laden gave interviews. He gave lectures about how the United States and Israel have a disastrous foreign policy that murders Muslims around the world. Israel with the Palestinians, inflaming the Islamic community, inflaming fundamentalists. And believe me, Israel is no victim here. I'm sorry to tell you. Their 75-year war with the Palestinians in West Bank and Gaza, especially after the Six-Day War, that's how Gaza and the West Bank were created. The Nakba, need I remind you what's happening now? And a 75-year history of displacing, forcibly displacing Palestinians. Yeah, you're going to inflame the Muslim community. At the same time, the United States need your history lesson. The first Gulf War, the Oil for Food program, which killed 500,000 men, women, and children, mainly sick and elderly. Sanctions on Iran, sanctions on uh, Libya and Syria later. I just... God, a horrible laundry list of offenses in the Middle East. This is all coming back. It's called blowback. That's why bin Laden attacked the United States. And he's telling you this. Ramzi Youssef told you this at his sentencing. You're the terrorist. You taught us how to hate how to bomb, how to kill. You were the first one to do it. And there is your motive. And what comes from motive? Attacks, incidents, 
like this one. We want to tell you what we know as we know it. We just got a report in that there's been some sort of explosion at the World Trade Center in New York City. One report said, and we can't confirm any of this, that a plane may have hit one of the two towers of the World Trade Center. But again, you're seeing the live pictures here. We have no further details than that. We don't know anything about what they have concluded happened there this morning but we're going to find out and of course make sure that everybody knows on the air these are of course the two twin trade center buildings that are down at the foot of manhattan that they really are the beacons of new york it was there that there was the explosion a couple of years ago uh, brought about by terrorists which that's all gone through the courts but this we don't know anything about we don't know about anything that has happened here other than the fact that there's obviously been a major incident there and we're going to go to a special report now from abc news This is an ABC News special report. Now, by the entire ABC network, uh, Good Morning America was in progress in the East Coast and the Midwest, but we're joined by the entire network just to show you some pictures at the foot of New York City. This is at the World Trade Center. Obviously, a major fire there, and there has been some sort of explosion. We don't fully know the details. There is one report, as of yet unconfirmed, that a plane has hit of the World Trade Center, and you can see that there is smoke there coming out of at least two sides of the building. And as you said, there are two towers, the tallest structures in Manhattan, on the island of Manhattan. We're trying to get people on the telephone to see what more we can learn. We have no idea if it was a plane, was it in any sense deliberate, was it an accident? It does seem to be that there is... And so there you have attacks. attacks on September 11 2001 four airplanes were hijacked American Airlines flight 11 crashed into the North Tower United Airlines flight 175 crashed into the South Tower American Airlines flight 11 flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon and United Airlines Flight 93 crashed into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The attacks killed almost 3,000 people, which sent shockwaves all throughout the United States. I was at work in Queens, New York when it happened. And when I heard what happened on the radio on 2020, uh, 10, oh, I'm sorry, 10 wins, our boss at the job said, go home. I go back home and go upstairs to the roof because if you lived in Queens in New York, if you lived there, you go to your roof and you could see you know, a skyline of New York because there's a three-story, four-story apartment building, tenements. Other buildings are bigger, but as I got up on the roof, there were thousands of people all across Brooklyn, Queens, now on their rooftops, seeing the World Trade Center and the billowing smoke. 
And then we watched in horror as I saw the plume of fire from the South Tower. And you heard an audible gasp and whimpering from other people on their rooftops. And they found out that it was another plane that crashed into the South Tower. From there, I witnessed the collapsible tower. And by then, there was no more crying. There was no more whimpering. It was dead silence. It left us in a state of paralysis for the next couple of days, something that I've never seen in New York before. New York is very proud. almost arrogance in their in them being pride. They're not intentionally being dicks, you know, but we do have a couple of people that are like that. But New York is very fast. It's very loud, productive. But on that day and the days following it to the current day, it changed. It literally changed the psychology of New York. The collapse of the World Trade Centers basically were the end of the old New York and the beginning of a new world. And symbolically, it meant that if we can get to you and destroy the two biggest buildings, financial centers, we can get to you anywhere. And that's what the State Department wanted us to believe. So we can rely on the intelligence services and support them in any way possible through this tragedy. And for the first couple of days, I don't think I've ever saw ever. And I lived in New York for 43 of my 53 years. I never saw so much com camaraderie that trans it was like racism or religious indifference and political differences didn't exist. It was the closest, most spiritual unification of a people I've ever seen in my life. But that all disappeared when the news began implying that radical fundamentalism, which New Yorkers are genuinely ignorant of, and so are everyday Americans, began abusing, assaulting, and even killing Indian sheiks with turbans on their heads, Iraqis, Pakistanis, anyone who was brown was at the ire and the ignorance of a vengeful America. If the government said we were going to war with Easter Island, we would have went to war with Easter Island. 
That's how bloodthirsty the people were. And it also was a great recruitment tool, wasn't it? I hear stories all the time that, oh, I decided to go into the Army or the Marines or the Navy or the Air Force because I wanted to do my part. Your part to do what? To get vengeance? Justice? You don't even know who did it. Well, we know it was bin Laden. We know it was Al-Qaeda. The media said this. Well, it wasn't like that bin Laden didn't want to attack the United States. The conspiracy is that we knew about this since 1995. That they wanted to they wanted to use planes as weapons. That bin Laden was going to be involved at some level, but he didn't plan 9/11. That idea came from Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. That's why, to you truthers out there, that like to say, well, the FBI said they couldn't charge bin Laden. Well, one, that's right, because he wasn't the planner of 9/11, and two. We were still building charges on bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed because we didn't have a trial yet. Oh, ye of little faith that's out there that wants to say that bin Laden is just a patsy and so is Al-Qaeda. Oh, such simpletons. And to you victims of Alex Jones and and Rebecca Roth and loose change. I'm not gonna do yeah, I'm not gonna abuse you. I'm not gonna insult you. You're victims of of disingenuous people. Now, just because Al Qaeda hijacked the planes doesn't mean that that's the end of the fucking story. For example, if you look into the profile of these people. You'll notice that certain hijackers certainly don't fit the part. Now, if you go to an earlier episode where I covered Ziad Jara, please go to that. And it will tell you about a working theory that I have. That Israel may have had an operative inside the planes operation plot. using Ziad Jara, the alleged hijacker pilot of Flight 93, as the operative. Now, why do I say that? Well, to give you a quick rundown, and remember, what I'm saying here is speculation regarding Ziad Jara. I don't have evidence. But nevertheless, his family has ties to foreign intelligence. His uncle, Ali al-Jara, I'm sorry, his cousin, Ali al-Jara, was a spy for the Israeli intelligence services for 25 years inside Hezbollah. 25 years. His brother, Joseph al-Jara, was alleged to have been helping him for 10 of those years. Ziad Jara's uncle, Asim al-Jara, was a member of the Abu Nadal organization while being a spy for the intelligence services of Libya and Germany and Israel. So they have a deep history in the intelligence services. My working theory 
is that Ziad Jara was an Israeli spy inside the planes operation. I don't have evidence for this. I'm speculating. He didn't fit the profile because he was raised in a secular household in Lebanon where he was friends with Jews and Christians, went to a Christian school, was never taught any religion at home. Suddenly moves to Germany in 1996 with his cousin Salim Aljara, takes up electrical engineering courses at Griswold University, and the first thing this fucker does is go to radical mosques in Griswold. Why? Out of nowhere, fucking why? He meets an individual named Abdul Rahman al Makadi, who's a contact within Hamas, who introduces the Ajara to Islamic fundamentalists in Greecewall. He tells Ziajar about a mosque in Hamburg. Ziajar moves into his own room rented by a woman. From here on, he never lives with another individual ever again. He lived with his cousin Salim in Greecewall, in which he was also contacted by his long-lost uncle with Israeli and Libyan intelligence, Asim al-Jar, who had later claimed to, after 9-11, he would later claim that he hadn't seen Ziajara in many years. Well, that's a fucking lie. Ziajara moves to Hamburg. And through al-Makadi's contacts, introduces him to another radical cleric named Marcel Hussein K. Who introduces him to the Al-Quds Mosque in Germany. Why is this important? Because this is where the members of the planes operation pilot hijackers originated from, like Muhammad Atta and Marwan al-Shehi and Ramzi bin al-Sheib. Ziajar is introduced to these people, grows a beard, writes a martyrdom will, and later on, many years later, goes to Afghanistan with Marwan al-Shehi, Muhammad Atta, and meets with not low-level people in Al-Qaeda, instead meets with Osama bin Laden and Muhammad Atef and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He's told about the planes operation. And because these guys are Western educated and they look Western, they fit the part, they, they swear bayat, loyalty to bin Laden, and they're involved in the planes operation. Just like that. Just like that. However, German intelligence, the BFV, later we give an interview to Der Spiegel, which is a German online publication, in the weeks after the 9-11 attacks and says, we have no evidence that Ziad Jara was a member of the Al-Quds Mosque, for the exception of one photograph at a wedding of one of its members, Saeed Bahaji. We have no evidence that Ziad Jara was a member of the mosque, 
and, and a member of the Hamburg cell other than the FBI telling us so. Really? Well, I would like to think that's a big fucking giant red flag. Wouldn't you, ladies and gentlemen? You ain't going to hear this from Christopher Bolin. You ain't going to hear this from Jason Burmis. You ain't going to hear this from Richard Gage. You ain't going to hear this from the media. I wonder why. Ziad Jara then gets another passport to Afghanistan, just like Mohammed Atta Mohan Shahi, and travels through the United Arab Emirates. And the United Arab Emirates see that he's coming from Afghanistan. They also see that he's got documents. Hey, doesn't this sound just like Ahmed Ajaj, the Palestinian who played the part of a radical fundamentalist because the Israeli intelligence services asked him to? I'm sure there's no direct connection, but man, I'm not a coincidence theorist either. In his possession was an Afghanistan stamp from Al-Qaeda. Wow, look, I'm a radical fundamentalist. And also on his possessions was bomb-making materials and other radical, uh, um, not bomb-making materials, but uh, manuals from Al-Qaeda training camps in his luggage knowing that he's going to be screened because he's traveling from Pakistan to hide the fact that he was in Afghanistan but he didn't hide it because he had an Al-Qaeda stamp on his passport from Afghanistan so United Arab Emirates sees that he's going to Florida they call the CIA now ladies and gentlemen I'm not making this up this is all factually true this is not speculation this part. CI says, all right, let him in. We, we, what? Did, did you not hear us? This guy is coming from an Afghanistan training camp. Most likely he's Al-Qaeda. Let him through. <laughs> I'm not kidding you, folks. He goes to, he goes to Florida. Goes to a flight school, Florida Training Center. Gets his commercial license. By the way, he lives alone. He's never seen what Muhammad Atamo and Al-Shahi. You know what's funny about the Ajar too? Doesn't end there. Two days before 9-11, he rents a room at the Days Inn Motel in New Jersey. He meets with the muscle hijackers who just entered the States. Muscle hijackers like Saeed al-Gamdi, Ahmed al-Nami, and Ahmed al-Haznawi. You would think that he rents one room two days before 9-11, you know, to go over plants, to feel comfortable with the people that you're going to be on an operation that is the biggest operation in al-Qaeda history that's really important. No. What does he do? He rents a room for himself. And he rents a room for them. Why does he do that? Why does he always live alone? Never is seen with Muhammad Atta besides one time 
in Afghanistan at Tora Bora, at the Tanakh Farms, in which there's video of it, but there's no sound. The only time we ever see Ziajara with anyone, he makes an Al-Qaeda will, a video will. He can't get through it because he's laughing and he's making fun. Meanwhile, we have other video wills from the Al-Qaeda operatives involved with 9-11, and they were dead serious. I have them uploaded to my Odyssey account. But Zia Jar is laughing. Can't go through with it. Doesn't know what to say. And it's just screaming at this point. Hey, um, we got a problem. This guy has family intelligence with Israel and foreign intelligence. This guy really doesn't, he's like, he's desperately trying to fit in. He reminds me of that Steve Buscemi clip where he's playing the part of a skater. He's wearing a red hat backwards and he goes to a school and he says, hello, young kids. No, he says, hello, fellow kids. Meanwhile, Steve Buscemi's in his 60s. That's what Zia Jar is. Zia Jar is Steve Buscemi trying to fit in. <laughs> Man, how does nobody talk about this shit? I don't I don't get it. I, I just anyway. September 11, 2001, he calls his girlfriend Azel Sanguine and tells her that he loves her three times. He hangs up. The FBI says in their own footnotes of the commission report. Basically, the 9-11, this is in the 9-11 Commission Report. This is the reason why you should fucking read it, because you can catch shit like this. The report says that the FBI does not know whether he made that phone call at the hotel, the days in the hotel, or at the airport. How do you fucking not know? How do you not know that? There are two separate numbers. Why is that being hidden? Now, I'm not going to end there. The night before, Zia Jara writes a letter to his girlfriend, and it's very cryptic. Google Zia Jara's letter. Tells her that he'll see her in time. That you won't understand until... No, you won't appreciate what we have done until you'll finally understand that we will together live forever at a place far away. Now, the only problem was, was that he mailed it to a wrong address. <laughs> so the final letter to the love of your life goes to a wrong address. The letter is returned back to sender, but by then the investigators are like, wait a minute, there's a letter here. And they get it because it goes back to sender. And what they find was that Ziajar's cryptic letter was quite cryptic. But does Ziajar write the false address in the hopes that the letter would be found? Speculation here. 
was it a hint that Zia Jara message was really that he was going to meet Aziel Sanguin in the witness protection program. By the way, she went to the witness protection program, but Zia Jara is allegedly dead. Was the message basically to show the world that, hey, I am playing a part of a radical fundamentalist, that you won't understand why we did it until later. Now, of course, Israeli intelligence wouldn't want him to write a letter like that in the hopes of maybe, you know, catching on. But he did it anyway. Or was it just basically a, a letter that really had no nefarious undertones? And that it was sent to a wrong address because he was nervous. That very well could be the case. And you can't write off like that. I don't care how much you hate the Israeli government. I don't care how much you hate Zionism. If Israel is basically not involved with 9-11, then guess what? They're not involved. End of story. Be a proper investigator. If you have evidence of so, then show it. Produce it. If not, move on. Move fucking on. We're only interested in the truth. That's it. We can't operate on belief. You can't go to court saying, I believe Israel's involved. They'll look at you and throw you out and call you a fucking nut job, which you are. That's one area of the attacks I always found interesting. One area that basically is never really talked about. And once we got past the the attacks of September 11, 2001, what was next? Well, now we have to investigate the crime. What did the intelligence services know? Why didn't they stop this? Or could they? We're going to talk about that in a second, because this is where we can actually show that there was a conspiracy pre-9-11. And boy, did the intelligence services, they must have had a lot, because the information that is not classified shows that not only did they have enough information, they had enough information to stop the the operation way before it even happened. And I prepared a chronology, which uh, I'll share with all of the members, um, which just to summarize, go back a few years before her beginning of the story. In January of 96, when the CIA created a special unit to focus on bin Laden. In February of 98, when bin Laden issued a public fatwa authorizing and promoting attacks on U.S. civilians anywhere in the world. May 1998, in a press conference when bin Laden says he's going to bring war to America. 
In June 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information from several sources that bin Laden is considering attacks in the U.S., including Washington and New York, August 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information that an unidentified group from the Middle East are going to fly an explosive-laden plane from a foreign country into the World Trade Center, September 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information that bin Laden's next operation could possibly involve flying an aircraft loaded with explosives into a U.S. airport. October 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information that al-Qaeda was trying to establish an, uh, an operative cell within the United States. The fall of 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information concerning a bin Laden pilot, uh, plot involving aircraft in New York, Washington uh, areas. And then in December 1998, when uh, we, uh, as we heard yesterday or the day before, when DCI Tenet uh, pro provided some written guidance to presumably everybody in the CIA declaring that the United States is at war with bin Laden and al-Qaeda. That's December 1998, before the story begins. The spring of 1999, when the intelligence community obtains information about a planned al-Qaeda attack on the United States government facility in Washington. August 1999, when the intelligence community obtains information that bin Laden has decided to target for assassination the Secretary of State and uh, Secretary of Defense and the DCI. December 1999, when Ahmed Rassam is arrested as he attempts to enter the United States in the state of Washington from Canada with chemicals and detonator material, his intended target is Los Angeles Airport. December 1999, when the DCI communication to CIA employees warns a mounting threat of al-Qaeda attack to U.S. interests abroad and in the United States, urging them to do whatever is necessary to disrupt bin Laden's plans. That's the background. And that's just the beginning of it. And there's a whole lot to go on here. Because when the investigation began into September 11, 2001, there was a huge array of information that basically saw um, that the intelligence services inside the United States, although the specifics we don't have, but actionable intelligence, yeah, we had that. And, you know, according to former senior executive of the NSA, Thomas Drake. He basically says that we very well had enough information at our disposal and could have prevented the 9-11 attacks. Yeah. He said that. Now, 
What do you say to that? I don't know, but I could tell you this. That the CIA and the NSA were running a long-term program on bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. That began as far back as 1992. It could have, it could have been before then. But from the historical information that we have, from the historical record, the CIA were monitoring bin Laden at his home in Khartoum, Sudan in 1992. They were also monitoring phone the phone calls, satellite phones, from the NSA because these phones were decrypted, getting data collecting numbers. What does this number belong to? Who does this number belong to? And in 1996, in the early part of 96, one number to the NSA stuck out. And it belonged to a house in Yemen. This number had over 200 calls, satellite phones used by Al-Qaeda and bin Laden. And so thus began an operation into this house located in the capital of Yemen, Sana. And they found out that the house is owned by a man named Ahmed al-Hadda. Hardly anyone ever mentions this name. My co-researchers like DJ Thermodetonator and, and Darren Harvey and Sean Russell and the kids over at PNAC, they do. They're the only ones. But no one ever really talks. And this is the central theme. This is the, this is the backbone of 9-11 right here, what I'm about to share with you. Because this house in Yemen was an Al-Qaeda communications hub, meaning that if somebody in a country like Syria, I'm sorry, in a country like Egypt or Saudi Arabia, where the phone lines are being monitored because these countries have extremists in them in which the government is trying to crack down on. And they don't have protections of like freedoms and like the United States does, like it did anyway, it did. So they would listen to these phone calls. So what happens was if a militant in Egypt, say, for example, wanted to contact uh, bin Laden in Afghanistan, this militant in Egypt would have the number in Yemen, and he would pass off this message to Ahmed al-Hadda or anybody else that was living there. By the way, one person that was on and off living there, just so happened to be Khalid al-Midar. And if that name sounds familiar, he was involved in the hijacking of Flight 77. Just so happens. He's married to the daughter of Ahmed al-Hadda, Hoda al-Hadda. So that made him his son-in-law. So this contact in Egypt, once to talk to bin Laden in Afghanistan, would send a message to Yemen where the phone lines are being monitored. And then that contact inside that house 
passes on that message to bin Laden. And that's how it became an Al-Qaeda communications hub. Michael Scheuer, the unit chief of the bin Laden issue station, which was a virtual station that employed the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, to coordinate all their efforts in investigating bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And they would share the information with each other. That was the hopes anyway. Michael Scheuer was the unit chief and would later on say that the NSA was the leading agency in the world when it came to collecting information about bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Now, this is, you know, unequivocally true because bin Laden's satellite phones and Al-Qaeda satellite phones were also being monitored by the NSA. And on top of that, the NSA were listening to the phone calls of the Al-Qaeda communications hub, and they were collecting numbers as well. Just imagine now, just use your imagination, what was being talked about in these messages, what names were being mentioned, what operations were being talked about. Because they're not talking about the Yankees. They're not talking about Tom Cruise. They're not talking about Jersey Shore. These are serious men. Talking about serious things. Now, I don't know. I don't have specifics in front of me. But if we want to crack 9-11, this is it. Right here. We can file a Freedom of Information request regarding what was being said on these calls, what numbers were being called. Also, the Night Limit Commission report and the Joint House Inquiry are now open. A group of women who lost their husbands in the World Trade Center forced the U.S. government to open an inquiry into the attacks. They were called the Jersey Widows. And they had a lot of questions involving Saudi financing of the hijackers, the CIA running uh, their own program inside the United States on at least two known Al-Qaeda operatives, why information was not shared with the FBI regarding two Al-Qaeda operatives inside the United States? Why was this information withheld? And when the 9-11 Truth Movement tells you to don't read the commission report, don't read the joint inquiry, even though you have a sitting director of the CIA committing perjury. Now, you wouldn't know that if you're not watching or reading the Joint House Inquiry. Now, I did a past episode on this. This is so huge, so monumentally huge, that I did an episode, one of my most important episodes, in my opinion. And it was based on Carl Levin interviewing George Tennant, the DCI, Kofor Black, the director of counterterrorism, and Tom Wilshire, 
who is hidden behind a partition screen, the deputy director of the bin Laden issue station. The conspiracy here that I'm referring to is that the CIA got wind from a contact inside the NSA who are monitoring the Yemen hub about an upcoming meeting in Malaysia. And this meeting was being held in a condominium that was rented by Yazid Sufat, who is also, uh, who has connections to an Indonesian terrorist group, an Al-Qaeda affiliate named the Gemma Islamiyah. In this meeting that took place between January 5th and January 8th of 2000 were some of the biggest names in the terrorist industry. People like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi bin al-Shib from the Hamburg cell, Ridwin Isamudin, who goes by the nom de guerre Hambali, a bomb maker for Jemis Lamia, Fahad Al-Kuso, Taufik Binatash, who also goes by the nom de guerre Kalad. And also in this meeting were Khalid Al-Midar and Nawafa Hasbi. Now I point these two out because there was a phone call in December of 1999 from Malaysia to the house in Yemen, in which they spoke directly to Khalid al-Midar. On the other end of the call was Taufik bin Atash, Khalad. The NSA knew Khalad's name, and they knew Khalid's name. They also knew about Nawaf's name, but they never shared this with the CIA, and they never shared it with the FBI. They hoarded the information. Question is, why did they do that? All right. Now, they know about this meeting in Malaysia. Now, the NSA doesn't do human intelligence, meaning they don't track people down and take photographs. So they told the FBI and the CIA about this because they do. And they said, take pictures of these people and send it back to us, because what they'll do is they'll they'll use the photographs because they got the names. So now they'll know the names and faces. However, the CIA told Malaysian authorities to start taking pictures of everybody coming in and out of this condominium. And they did. Those photographs went to the bin Laden issue station. The bin Laden issue station did not share this information with the NSA, nor did they share this information with the FBI or the State Department. They too hoarded the information. The NSA also knew, as well as the CIA, that Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf Azmi were leaving the meeting in Malaysia, traveling to Bangkok, and on their way to the United States. Now, unlike the Hamburg cell, the CIA and NSA knew that these two men were al-Qaeda. They also knew that they had connections to the East Africa embassy bombings in Africa. And it makes you wonder, why didn't they tell the FBI headquarters about them inside the country? Because it's no longer the jurisdiction of the CIA. And the CIA didn't want 
the FBI to take over the program inside the country, even though it's their jurisdiction. And they didn't tell the FBI for the next 16 months. The FBI actually saw the cable of Khalid al-Badar and passport and dual U.S. visa. And Doug Miller, who is an FBI agent on loan to the CIA's counterterrorism center, Bin Laden issue station, began writing a draft. And he attached the cable, copy of the cable, to the draft. However, it had to get permission from the deputy director, Tom Wilshire. Tom Wilshire told an analyst, Michelle Ann Casey, to please hold off from sending to FBI headquarters per Wilshire. Mark Rossini, another FBI agent out of New York under John O'Neill, tasked to the Bin Laden issue station, complained to Michelle Ann Casey in which she told him, this is not an FBI matter. We'll let you know when to tell headquarters. But for now, you're not to tell him anything. And he didn't. And so Khalid al-Badar and Nawab al-Hazmi were being assisted inside the United States by Saudi operatives, people like Omar al-Bayoumi, Osama Basnan, Fahad al-Tamari, who's an imam at the mosque that these two men went to, Omar al-Olaki, also an imam at a mosque in Virginia and San Diego, where the Khalid al-Madar and Nawab al-Hazmi went to. All under the direct supervision of a man named Muasad al-Jarrah, no relation to Ziad al-Jarrah, who is the U.S.-Saudi head of Ministry Affairs, Islamic Affairs, in Washington, D.C. Wow. Fuck yeah, now we're talking. For the next 16 months, the CIA knew that Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi, as well as the NSA, that they were in the country. The CIA intentionally lied to the FBI, told them that they didn't know who these men were, even when they showed them pictures, and basically George Tenet went before the Joint House Inquiry and committed perjury. And this is what he said. Now we have a meeting in the year 2002 in New York City. And this is a meeting of a CIA analyst and FBI officials from the New York field office, which was the office investigating the coal bombing and the FBI headquarters including the FBI analyst on detail to the counterterrorist center at the CIA. The FBI agents on the coal bombing pressed the CIA at that meeting for information regarding Midhar and the Malaysia meeting, but the CIA representative denied them that information. It's a very specific finding in the staff report that there was a refusal to share that information relative to Midhar and Malaysia and as to why the CIA was tracking Midhar at a June 2001 meeting on the specific request of an FBI agent in New York. My question is, do you know why that 
CIA agent refused to tell the CIA agent what the FBI, but the CIA, let me start over. Do you know why the CIA agent refused to tell the FBI agent what the CIA agent knew when the FBI agent specifically said, why are you tracking Midhar? We have, um, we're going to have a disagreement on the facts here. Um, and here are the facts as I understand them. There were three people who left New York to go to, to, go to Washington to go to New York that day. It was an FBI analyst from FBI headquarters, an FBI analyst from our counterterrorism center, and our analyst. They went up to discuss the coal investigation. The FBI analyst from FBI headquarters brought the surveillance photos with her. And at the end of the conversation, and I've now talked to two of the people involved, Senator, the FBI analyst from FBI headquarters handed the surveillance photos to the New York field office personnel. There was some discussion about them. Indeed, they were talking about different people. Midhar was not who they were talking about in this meeting. When I asked our person at this meeting as to whether he was, he was specifically asked about Midhar and Hazmi, uh, he, believe, he has no recollection of the subject ever being directed to him or ever coming up. So there's a, there's a factual issue here, and I've only talked to two of the people involved. Well, let, me read you the, let me read you the staff report. The CIA analyst who attended the New York meeting acknowledged to the joint inquiry staff that he had seen the information regarding El Midar's U.S. visa and Al Hazmi's travel to the United States, but he stated that he would not share information outside of the CIA unless he had authority to do so. That's what he told our staff. Do you disagree with that? Sir, I've talked to him as well. Do you disagree that he said that to our staff? Well, no, I don't disagree. He said it to your staff. I'm telling you what he told Did he, he tell told you me. something differently? Yes, sir. Okay. He gave me a different perspective. So he told you and he told our staff something differently. Well, okay. The, but I, I think it's important, sir. Yeah, but our time is limited, so let me just keep going. That's the answer. He told you something differently from what he told our staff. Mr. Mueller, Director Mueller, at that June 11th meeting, did the FBI know that Midhar and Hazmi were at the January 2000 meeting of al-Qaeda operatives in Malaysia? I don't believe they did. All right. So we still don't know in June of 2001 what the CIA has known for 15 months. Now, you wouldn't know any of this if you were part of the 9-11 Truth Movement that followed people like Richard Gage and Jason Burmas or Christopher Bullen because they told you not to read any government report because it's the official narrative. Even though, if you read these reports, you'll see that there are bits and pieces of where the intelligence services are enacting a cover-up. In this case, Tenet committed perjury. He also basically didn't tell an accurate story. He also interfered in an FBI investigation. So with that being said, you had a longstanding operation involving Saudi intelligence, and the CIA, who basically said that the reason why they were tracking these two men was to try and flip them, to have them as informants inside Al-Qaeda. I, I, I'm not buying it, but I can't say for sure that it's false. It could be very well true. 
So I have to leave it as is. That's what a responsible investigator does. You can't disprove it. You have to leave it as is. Because it could be the truth. You don't dismiss it or erase it because you don't like it. You don't get to do that. You don't have the luxury to basically ascertain what is true and false because you believe it's true or false. You better know it's true or false. Nine Eleven Commission report comes out in 2004. Joint House Inquiry releases their report. The Inspector General of the CIA and the FBI release their reports. Basically washes hands of everybody. Nobody gets fired. Nobody gets in trouble. And the NSA was barely asked a question. That's what stuck out for me with the 9-11 Commission report. And I read all 16 chapters. And I've watched a majority of the V 9-11 Commission report videos. The NSA was basically ignored. Meanwhile, they're the lead agency in intelligence. Or were they? Because the next step is the aftermath of the attacks and the investigation of 9-11. And in the years after this, we basically come to find out there was another foreign intelligence ring operating in the deepest crevasses of the shadowy world of the intelligence industry. But they weren't in Qatar. They weren't in Afghanistan. They weren't in Saudi Arabia or Iraq. They weren't in Pakistan. They were inside the United States of America. And they were Israel intelligence services and military. Say what? Yes, that's right. The Israeli intelligence service and Israeli military were inside the United States operating in secret, spying on the FBI, the DEA, and living in the close proximity of none other than the 9-11 hijackers. Oh, don't take it from me. Let's listen into a report by Carl Cameron. Fox News has learned some U.S. investigators believe that there are Israelis again very much engaged in spying in and on the U.S., who may have known things they didn't tell us before September 11th. Fox News correspondent Carl Cameron has details in the first of a four-part series. Since September 11th, more than 60 Israelis have been arrested or detained, either under the new Patriot anti-terrorism law or for immigration violations. A handful of active Israeli military were among those detained, according to investigators, who say some of the detainees also failed polygraph questions when asked about alleged surveillance activities against and in the United States. There is no indication that the Israelis were involved in the 9-11 attacks, but investigators suspect that the Israelis may have gathered intelligence about the attacks in advance and not shared it. 
A highly placed investigator said there are, quote, tie-ins. But when asked for details, he flatly refused to describe them, saying, quote, Evidence linking these Israelis to 911 is classified. I cannot tell you about evidence that has been gathered. It's classified information. Fox News has learned that one group of Israelis, spotted in North Carolina recently, is suspected of keeping an apartment in California to spy on a group of Arabs who the United States is also investigating for links to terrorism. Numerous classified documents obtained by Fox News indicate that even prior to September 11th, as many as 140 other Israelis had been detained or arrested in a secretive and sprawling investigation into suspected espionage by Israelis in the United States. Investigators from numerous government agencies are part of a working group that's been compiling evidence since the mid-90s. These documents detail hundreds of incidents in cities and towns across the country that investigators say, quote, may well be an organized intelligence gathering activity. Now, who are these Arabs in California? Well, Khalid al-Bidar and Awaf al-Hazmi. That's who. And later on, Hani Hanjou, the alleged hijacker pilot of Flight 77. They were also found in Florida, which was the biggest of the Israeli units. And who's in Florida? Mohammed Atta, Marwan Ashei, and Ziad Jara, the Hamburg cell. Later on, you have the muscle hijackers that came in much later. But they were all over throughout the Southwest and the Northeast. Now, I'm currently doing a reading of the Gerald Shea Memorandum. Gerald Shea, who's a retired corporate lawyer out of a corporate lawyer out of San Obispo, California, he uh, did his own investigation into the Israeli spy operation and got a hold of the DA report that came out, uh, which detailed the uh, the lengthy operation in detail uh, regarding um, the monitoring of DA facilities in the United States by Israeli art students. And what they did was the Israelis used a moving front company called Urban Moving Systems in New Jersey and New York. And there were other moving companies that were linked to Urban Moving Systems, like Classic International Movers, uh, Max Movers, Moishi Movers, White Glove Movers, uh, these small makeshift moving companies that are legit, quote unquote legit. Yeah, they're licensed, but they're like rinky-dink companies, not major companies like Beacons, for example. But these are like little companies that hire uh, people and they pay them under the table. You know they don't have no health program or nothing like that. You know they don't they don't do that. But what they what they do is they they they're strictly cash. I worked for one when I lived in Vegas. I worked for a little rinky dink company in Vegas, moving company, where they would hire you know they would hire like twenty guys and rent like ten trucks from Ryder, and um you know you know move clients you know. Clients that, you know, three-hour moves, no big moves, nothing like that. So anyway, they would hire these Israelis for summer jobs to work in New York. Now, you know, these aren't Mossad operatives. You know, the, you know the, the they're called the dancing Israelis, and the media called them that. They were The FBI called them the high-fivers, and they were employees of Urban Movement Systems. Now, on September 11, 2001, how this all started was basically they were— there was a woman in um, uh, a condominium called Doric Towers in Jersey City, New Jersey. Her name is Maria. And she basically was uh, told by our neighbor to take her binoculars and look across the Hudson and see the World Trade Center, which she did. Maria's older. She was, I think, in her 60s. 
And when she did that, she noticed that there was a commotion underneath her, which was the parking lot of Doric Towers. And what she saw was there was a truck, a white truck, and there were three individuals who were jumping up and down and celebrating, high-fiving each other and, you know, just hugging each other. And she said, wow, that's really strange. Why would they celebrate, you know, a tragic incident like this? And thank goodness to this woman, Maria, who is really an unsung hero of mega proportions because she took down the license plate of this truck and the truck left, you know, evidently it left. And she waited for her husband to come back from jury duty to see what she could do next. Now, the husband did come home midday and told her, look, you should actually tell the police this because that's really strange that they'd be celebrating the tax. Sounds like they were in on it. And so she did. And there was a be on the lookout, a bolo report regarding an urban moving systems white panel truck with license plate J and J, I think 383 or something like that. And at about 3.30 in the afternoon, there was a cop named Scott DeCarlo from the New Jersey Township area who was um, at the uh, New Jersey Turnpike. People were trying to leave, but they couldn't. And basically, he was you know, coordinating traffic. And he saw a white panel truck. And so he looked at the license plate, and he saw it was off by one number. And so he, he said, well, I'm going to call you know, headquarters and see if this is the truck. And basically saw that um, it was one number off and basically said, well, maybe I got it wrong. And, you know, he went back, wrote down license plate again, and it was the, the license plate. And he said, all right. He was with his partner, Sergeant Dennis Ravelli, and they basically surrounded the truck and said he ordered the occupants to get out. And the driver of the truck, who understood English, didn't get out of the truck. And basically, Scott DeColo had to drag him out. And in the truck were four other people. So the three guys who were celebrating, there were the three in the truck and two others. Now, that's not all. What made the situation even more unusual or even outright fucking weird was the simple fact that when Scott DeCarlo was transporting the driver, who he found out was Sivan Kurzberg, Savon Kersberg mentioned something to Scott DiCarlo that seemed really out of fucking place. And he said this. We are not your problem. The Palestinians are your problem. Your problem are our problems. Now, look, folks. I've heard some weird shit in my life. Heck, I used to watch Sesame Street on mushrooms when I was younger. Not, you know, 10 years old, but, you know, 20. And I saw some really crackpottery things. But for the, for the likes of me to this very day, I cannot understand why Sivan Kersberg would say something so out of place as that. What do the Palestinians have to do with anything? Were they supposed to blame the Palestinians for 
but I thought it was Iraq. And it makes you wonder, while that was being planted in the consciousness of people, that the Palestinians were the problem, that they were the ones who attacked the United States. Well, how the fuck would he know that? How would he know if Palestinians were on that plane or not? It really makes you wonder. Now, this cop's antenna was shooting up. All right, we got to talk to these guys. But they weren't talking. They ran their names, found out that they served in the military. No big deal. Nothing like that, right? So they held for 71 days. They failed their polygraphs. Something's up. Finds out that one of the uh, guys in the truck, Omar Mamory, the youngest one, has a residence in Hollywood, Florida. He also has a driver's license. And it just so happens that the residence in Florida is a residence that is implicated in the art student ring spy operation. Just so happens that also in Hollywood, Florida, Muhammad Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, and Ziajar also resided in. Just so happens. Well, to most people, especially with the crackpot, the fringe aspects of the 9-11 truth movement, oh, yeah, this is proof Israel's involved. Israel's involved. They did it. They hijacked the planes. The Patsies are the Saudis. This is how ignorant and foolhardy they are. Because the story doesn't end there with a removed systems. There's another truck that got pulled over on September 12, 2001. On September 11, 2001, an removed systems truck was seen moving from New Jersey to Chicago. The driver of the truck told the police officers in Pennsylvania when it was pulled over, that, hey, we're going to a client, we're moving a client. This is before the bolo went out. No problem. Go ahead. Day later, bolo comes out, right? Bolo comes out later on the afternoon, next day. Same truck, pulled over in a town called York, Pennsylvania. Different cops. Now the cops see there's two guys in it. Pull them over and say, hey, listen, what company you work for? They say, Urban Movie Systems. Oh, really? You have a number for a manager. They gave him a number. The manager is Dominic Suter. The cop calls Dominic Suter and says, hey, listen, I got a question. Shoot. Uh, I got two guys here. They say they're employees of yours. Their names are Roy Barak and Morty Bupo. They work for you? Yes. Well, they said that they had a client. They were moving from Chicago to New Jersey. Is that true? Dominic Tudor told, told them this. Due to the previous day's events, we were not going to take clients outside of New Jersey. 
The cop tells him, well, how the hell can you explain this? And Dominic Suda says, I can't. It's very strange. It's very strange indeed. <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> yeah, folks, they get detained. And just like the dancing Israelis, they go back, questioned by the FBI. And it just so happens that these two guys had intelligence history. One was, I think, uh, involved with um, uh, some intelligence, signals intelligence service. I think that was Modi Bupal. Not too sure about Roy Barak. But they both had uh, deeper uh, connections to, like, intelligence than the dancing Israelis did. But that wasn't all. The route that Roy Barak and Modi Bupal took was a route that was close by to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where Flight 93 crashed. Now, I can't say anything more than that. My speculation is this, that Roy Barack and Modi Bupo drove by the crash site and dumped Ziad Jara's burnt passport and belongings there. Because my working theory that I was talking about before is the following. Now remember, this is all speculation. That Ziad Jara was the Israeli mole that the CIA wanted for Al-Qaeda. That he had penetrated this cell in Germany that he had penetrated and become involved with the plane's operation all the way to the day itself because he was seen at the airport. We know that much from employees at United Airlines who had given him his boarding pass. I don't believe he got on that plane. Now, the reason why I say this is because we have six phone calls. You know, the phone calls that the 9-11 Truth Movement tells you it's fake. We have six phone calls, four from passengers, two from flight attendants that say the following. There are three hijackers. What does the FBI, what does the 9-11 Commission say as to how many people were on Flight 93 hijacking the plane? Four. Ziad Jara, Saeed al-Gamdi, Ahmed al-Nami, and Ahmed al-Hasnawi. But that's not all. Flight 93 is the only flight where the cockpit voice recorder survived. And thank goodness it did. Now, we don't have the audio, but we do have the transcript, which was used to prosecute Zacharias Massawi, the alleged 20th hijacker, for his role in 9-11 attacks in Virginia. The transcript is coming from the cockpit voice recorder, which is recording everything, whoever's in the cockpit. Ziad name never comes up. And as for the, the six people that says that there were three hijackers, three of them said that all three were also very dark-skinned. Ziajara is almost white. Not to mention also, in the transcript, near the end, there was a person sitting next to the pilot and tells him 
Sayyid, up down, up down in Arabic. Sayyid, up down. And what does that mean? Who is Sayyid? Well, there is a Sayyid, Sayyid al Gamdi. What is Sayyid al Gamdi doing in the pilot seat? Also, why is the plane going up and down? It's to throw the passengers from breaking in. Why? Because there's a lack of muscle hijackers on the plane to keep from everyone revolting. Unlike 11, 175, and 77. The one hijacker by the door who has a bomb belt and is the only one to have produced this fake bomb belt, he's killed. Which means that uh, the pastors were indeed fighting back and trying to get in. Now, I don't know about Boeing uninterruptible autopilot. I don't know if it was on these planes because if that was the case, why didn't Flight 93 crash into a, a target? If it was intentionally crashed in the field in Shanksville, was it because that the passengers were that close to getting in the cockpit and they were afraid that they were going to say or save the plane? Say something incriminating, like say there's only two people up here in dark skin? Now, I can't say that Ziajara wasn't on the plane for sure because. There are recordings of Ziajara saying that they are hijacking the plane. It's confirmed that it's his voice because the students at Florida Florida uh, Florida Flight Training Center said they they recognized the voice. And that's my speculation regarding Ziajara and Israel. Like I said, take it with a grain of salt. Also, we have in after the investigation, um, by the FBI, and during the end of the investigation, or you know, right near the past the midway port of the 9-11 Commission's investigation, that they were going to war with Iraq. What? Iraq? What does Iraq have to do with anything? Well, according to the State Department, Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda were meeting, procuring chemical and biological weapons. Now, this all came from the torture of I think a Lebanese national named Sheikh Ibn al-Libi. Sheikh Ibn al-Libi was captured by the CIA and he was sent to Egypt. He's born in Libya. Sheikh Ibn al-Libi. Sorry, I said Lebanese. In which the Egyptian authorities got questions from the CIA and asked him whether he saw Al-Qaeda uh, Al 
meeting with Bathurst officials, or that did he get this information from Al Qaeda contacts procuring chemical or biological weapons? And of course, they tortured him mercilessly for days and days until he finally cracked and said, Yes, I got information. This information is that a certain Al Qaeda member have met with Baptist officials procuring chemical or biological weapons. This information from the CIA was given to Colin Powell, the Secretary of State, and the entrusted stalwart and public official of the Bush administration. Surely he wouldn't lie to us, would he? This is what he had to say to the United Nations Security Council. I cannot tell you everything that we know, but what I can share with you when combined with what all of us have learned over the years is deeply troubling. What you will see is an accumulation of facts and disturbing patterns of behavior. The facts in Iraqis' behavior, Iraq's behavior, demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort, to disarm as required by the international community. Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. None of this should come as a surprise to any of us. Terrorism has been a tool used by Saddam for decades. Saddam was a supporter of terrorism long before these terrorist networks had a name. And this support continues. The nexus of poisons and terror is new. The nexus of Iraq and terror is old. The combination is lethal. With this track record, Iraqi denials of supporting terrorism take their place alongside the other Iraqi denials of weapons of mass destruction. It is all a web of lies. When we confront a regime that harbors ambitions for regional domination, hides weapons of mass destruction, and provides haven and active support for terrorists, we are not confronting the past. We are confronting the present. And unless we act, we are confronting an even more frightening future. The United Nations Security Council passed a resolution to go to war with Iraq, and thus began a, a war against a country that basically had no affiliation with Al-Qaeda and were not involved with the procuring of chemical or biological weapons involving Al-Qaeda and had no affiliation with the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, in which a million up to a million and a half people, according to whatever numbers you get from Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, or the International Criminal Courts, or the International uh, uh, Center for the Red Cross. A million people would died on a lie. A million. Outraged as we are for the death of 3,000 Americans, where's the fucking outrage for a million? A million, a gross number. And you wonder why terrorist organizations and Islamic countries hate us.
from there, we got the circumvention of the Patriot Act, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2002 and 2003, a blank check to the NSA, CIA, FBI, to expand worldwide, to be given lax laws, to abuse laws, to obtain information by any means necessary, even if you have to work with cell providers such as uh, um, Verizon and AT&T to provide the NSA with every single phone number belonging to every single American customer belonging to those companies without a warrant. in which they had built a gigantic data processing center called the Utah Data Center, where for a number of years, every single phone call, every single voicemail, every single email, every single text message from any electronic device, computer, or phone was sent there forever. Was it to stop terrorism? I think not. Do you even know what the Utah Data Center is? But you know how many touchdowns Tom Brady threw in 2007. Ignorance is indeed bliss at times, but it's also a fucking curse. Because the important matters like this go ignored. Later on, we invaded Syria under the pretense of fighting against the Islamic State. Meanwhile, we were supporting Al-Qaeda affiliate groups through a CIA-led program under General David Petraeus called Timber Sycamore, in which Israel, Saudi Arabia, Turkey were involved in the program, funding and giving military aid to the very groups that we were supposed to be at war in the war on terrorism to help overthrow Bashar al-Assad. We also helped to instigate the forcible assassination and murder of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, which the country has now been a stalwart in Africa, is now an open-air slave market. Thank you, Hillary Clinton and Samantha Powers and Susan Rice, who are behind the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi and the destruction of Libya. Ghouls, the whole lot of them. Obama, Clinton, Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld. the circumvention of the Geneva Conventions. In fact, President Cheney, he actually saw fit to add some of the best lawyers in the fucking country. People like David Addington, that's his personal lawyer, or John Yu. And what did these guys do? 
Well, in the, the weeks after 9-11, they drafted legislature in which the Department of Justice would be overrided by the President of the United States in which who would he consider enemy combatants? Enemy combatants that couldn't be protected under the Geneva Convention because they're not from the United States. Where torture could be legal. Where the President can be given the War Powers Act and could suspend writ of habeas corpus, which actually guarantees a person the right to challenge his imprisonment in front of an independent authority. And they also drafted legislation that approved for indefinite detention. That's what the White House lawyers did. President Bush authorized the CIA to authorize a kill list. That's right, a kill list. A list of individuals that would not be given a trial, that they would just be killed. They also authorized the CIA for their rendition and torture program, which started under President Clinton and expanded under President Bush after 9-11. And the CIA certainly went to town. Afghan warlords would capture Arabs or opposing Afghan neighbors. Maybe they owed a debt to, maybe they wanted to take their land, hand them up and say, hey, this guy is Al-Qaeda, this guy is Taliban. So they send them over, blindfolded them, goggled them, shackled them to planes from head to toe and then put them in CIA black sites in Germany, in Poland, in Lithuania, torture these people in the worst possible ways, the most grotesque manner, people that had no right to be tortured, people like Mohamedou Aoudslahi, who I personally interviewed, people like Mansour Adayifi, who I personally interviewed, that had no connection to Al-Qaeda or the terrorist attacks, held in prison for over 15 fucking years without trial, without a charge. How is that legal? I don't hear the 9-11 Commission. I don't hear 9-11 truthers talk about this. And certainly... The American media covered the CIA when they ran these programs until they couldn't do it anymore. Meanwhile, Alberto Gonzalez, the White House lead counsel, demanded U.S. Congress in November of 2001 to expand on the president's authority even further than what was already agreed upon Because Bush wanted to wage war against suspected terrorists abroad and even inside the United States. Because it didn't just end there. It starts here in the country. And that's what they did to the people that were involved with the January 6th uh, attacks on the White House. And the Capitol, I'm sorry, the Capitol. What people like Alberto Gonzalez and John Yu and David Addington did was they gave the President of the United States, not the Department of Justice, not the Department of Defense, 
not the Attorney General, not the Secretary of State, the President. One person, all this immense power that he could use all necessary and appropriate force to wage war against any nation on the face of the earth that is suspected, not convicted, suspected of harboring terrorists, whether they are persons or organizations. And what did the Senate do? My God, you got to love it. The Senate unanimously, three days after the attacks, voted 420 to 1 to expand on more unlimited war powers for the President of the United States. And while that was going on, a secret White House memo from the Justice Department argued, argued that in times of a national emergency, which 9-11 was, if the president decided that the threat is justified deploying the military inside the United States, not outside, inside, the president would be given the authority to do so without fail. Holy fucking shit. Do you see where this is going? Private military industrial corporations like Halliburton, LG3 Technologies, Raytheon, Boeing, making hand over fist with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq chugging on. How's that for an aftermath of 9-11? And finally, justice. Wow. What could I say about this? Because the 9-11 Commission was supposed to give us this justice. The Joint House Inquiry was supposed to give us this sense of justice. And they unhesitantly failed. Not only was there no justice, there was an injustice because George Tenet, the man who authorized Tom Wilshire, Richard Blee, Kofor Black, and others to not share information with the FBI or the State Department regarding two Al-Qaeda members inside the United States who was running an illegal operation alongside Saudi intelligence with Khalid Al-Midar and Hasmi involved. the monitoring of the Yemen hub. All this covered up, lied, telling lies. All of it from the CIA was actually covered up or ignored by the 9-11 Commission. The NSA, forget about it. They weren't even investigated. The Israelis and Saudis, not even a mention in either report. Anywhere. 
And you would think that if anybody had specifics, meaning time, date, who, what, when, where, and why, it would be the Israelis, the Saudis, and maybe even the NSA. Now, we'll never know what they had regarding the Israelis and the Saudis because we deported everyone. Because the first crime these people committed, when I'm talking about the Saudis and the Israelis, especially the Israelis, all these Israelis that were involved with the art student ring, they all had temporary visas. Now, that means they weren't supposed to work. And every single one of these people overstayed their visa. So what happens when they get arrested by local authorities or by the FBI? Do they stay in jail? Are they properly investigated? No. The first thing is they're handed over to INS and they're deported immediately. Now, who's to say, now I'm speculating here, who's to say that that's the reason why they hired people working in the moving industry because these are temporary people who have uh, experience in intelligence and some of these people have military backgrounds they were all here on visas that they allowed to be expired because they knew that if they got caught they were going to be expelled out of the country deported they weren't going to be waterboarded. They weren't going to be arrested and held indefinitely. They're going to be deported back to their home country and take whatever information that they collected and give it to whoever. Maybe, now take this with a grain of salt, this could be true too. Maybe the arts didn't ring, didn't have anything. Maybe they really didn't have anything on the 9-11 hijackers. Yeah, they lived right, right nearby in these towns like Hollywood, Florida, Sarasota. Yeah, they may have lived in San Diego too, you know, but maybe they didn't collect anything. This is the reason why we're left in a, held in a state of belief because we didn't get the specifics. We didn't investigate these people properly. So we don't know what they had and didn't have. And as proper investigators, we have to entertain that the Israelis may not have anything at all. But I highly doubt it. But I'm not going to let my own beliefs or opinions override my ability to make a cognitive, unbiased decision or thought process. But I'm also not going to write Israel off either. Too much benefited Israel regarding these attacks. Too much. And they weren't the only ones. Saudis benefited too. Justice. It continues to escape the very people that deserve it. Like the Jersey Widows. And like those families and friends of the people that were killed in the North and South Tower at the Pentagon and those involved in all four hijacked planes.
And that's the reason why I will continue to do what I do. And that is daily report and dutifully report without bias and prejudice information leading to 9-11 that can be used in a court of law. Because I'm always going to think that one day we're going to have that independent investigation that the 9-11 truth movement thinks they're going to get. But at this point, they're not. Because the information they provide is inaccurate. And at best, inconsequential. So what drives me for justice? Somebody who is as pessimistic as me. A hopeless pessimist. One who sees the world as nothing but one giant slaughterhouse. That doesn't have a bright future. When I have on my phone, my personal phone, is a picture of Kevin Cosgrove. Kevin Cosgrove was a an insurance businessman who was in the uh, well, he was the vice president of Aon Corporation. in the South Tower. He was on the 104th floor or fifth floor where Aon uh, Corporation is uh, housed at. And when Flight 175 struck the South Tower, he couldn't get downstairs. He was literally trapped. And with the smoke billowing all up top, thick black acrid smoke he decided to call an operator i'm not usually moved by anything if anything at all but it's this phone call that resonates with me when i first heard it and still to this day this is the phone call of kevin gosgrove made on the 105th floor of the South Tower. They have a lot of apparatus on the You got a little You got a little Mine's the high school. I've almost called about a dozen times already. T-O-S-G-R-O-V-E. Yeah. My wife thinks I'm all right. I called and said I was leaving the building. I was fine. I'm bang. Right, right. 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 Right
A-R-U. A-R-U? Right. That's not what you have. Hello? That's the reason why I'll continue to investigate the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. That's the reason why. I'll continue reading every single document and file I can find. That's the reason why I'll continue to interview people that were directly involved or affiliated with investigating, writing, reporting on the 9-11 attacks in areas relating to it. And that's the reason why I will continue to do future reporting, writing articles, and doing everything I possibly can to bring attention and to report honestly and responsibly in the hopes of creating a future movement of people in which they are empowered by knowledge and information where we can one day hold people accountable for their malfeasance and maybe even being directly involved with the coordination and affiliation with those involved with the attacks on our country on September 11, 2001. I missed a lot of stuff. I could have talked about a hell of a lot more, but I didn't want to keep droning on as this was basically just a a shoot, an unscripted talk about 9-11 before and after. Thank you very much for tuning in, guys. Um, happy Thanksgiving to every single one of you and see you in the next episode of the Dark and Dower. Have a good night, everybody.